this thing on her own is using it. I love it. Right? It love- didn't come from anyone else besides her. And I said, well, is the organization watching you? And like, don't other people want to use it? She said, yeah, well, I've told people about it, but they're not that interested. <laughs> I'm like, my God. Like, So they're brilliant. And it's doing exactly what you're saying too, which is do what you know is right for you and your customer. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Ashley Welch. Ashley is the co-founder of Somersault Innovation, as well as the co-author of the book titled Naked Sales, How Design Thinking Reveals Customer Motives and Drives Revenue. And in our conversation, we talk about why Ashley believes that it's time to strip away what she calls the tried and true pitches, you know, our favorite product talk tracks, and our fail-proof list of pain point questions, and focus instead on the human connection. She shares how to incorporate design thinking into your sales efforts, and doing so to ensure that you deeply understand not only your client, but also your client's customers, or your customer's customers. And we dig into three stages in her naked sales approach, discovery, insight, and accelerate. Now, while the stages may sound familiar, the execution is a little different with the design thinking approach. So we get into this and much, much more. But before we hear from Ashley, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could leave us a review and give us your feedback about how we're doing. So thank you very much. All right, let's jump into it. Ashley, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Andy. A pleasure to meet you. We've never had the opportunity before. Yes, I know. I feel like I keep seeing your name all about, so I'm really pleased to be here. <laughs> Is that good or bad? No, it's good. It's definitely good. It's all been positive so far. I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, right. All right, that's good. That's good. Yeah, it's like, yeah, could you just stop being so present out there? Um, so tell us a little bit about you and what you do. Yeah. Well, I'm the co-founder of Somersault Innovation with my business partner, Justin Jones. I mm-hmm. uh, And I'll tell you about what we are, but uh, we're, I'm in Boston, Massachusetts, as I told you. I'm a mom of two beautiful girls, 18, 21, and I've been in sales my entire career, so over 25 years now. And mm. we, we started Somersault seven years ago, Justin and I, on a hunch that uh, design thinking was a methodology that the world needed more of. And then we figured out actually that design thinking and sales was sort of this magic combination where we could give sellers these tools uh, that would help them be customer centric and most of all do incredible discovery. So we started a consulting firm and basically a sales enablement firm. And that's what we've been doing for seven years. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. And Justin's co-author of the book that you guys wrote, which we're going to talk about titled Naked Sales, How Design Thinking Reveals Customer Motives and Drives Revenue. Um, yeah, enjoy the book. I, the, one, I don't want to say the best virtue of the book, but one of the virtues of the book is it's very short. <laughs> we read very quickly, but there's a lot of great content in there as well. And, and um, yeah, certainly I'm aligned with, with many of the things that you write about. So um, how'd you come up with this idea of naked sales? Well, I think it, it goes back to like, how do we come up with the idea of design thinking in sales? And I think mm-hmm. because I had had such a background in sales, as we were getting into these tools, which are about being 
when you talk about this too, like rabidly curious and sort of an mm-hmm. insight hunter looking for insights about your customer that are novel, um, really listening well, and then being co-creative with them. Like all of these are tools and techniques from the world of design that it occurred to us, like, isn't that what great sellers do? So mm-hmm. we actually started playing with teams at Salesforce. I knew somebody there who said, yeah, you know, you can try something out with a team of mine. We did. We gave them tools and then we coached them in the use of the tools against target accounts. And the results were ridiculous. I mean, I couldn't even believe it. But they were opening up new accounts. They were sort of landing million-dollar deals in ways they hadn't before. So we just mm-hmm. kept riffing off of that. And we've continued to iterate and sort of build out the portfolio of tools And now we're having a narrower focus on discovery because that's what we hear our clients asking mostly for is and and don't do so well, which is how do we do better discovery? How do we stay open longer so that we actually reveal more opportunity and don't sort of get what someone said the other day to me is like we get happy ears, which means you say something I can solve. I'm like right there on it. Close that down, narrow in and let's get this deal done. Well, I think you also though pinpoint in the book is is this idea that sellers become closed minded because they ask their usual ten to twelve questions. Um, you know, they get the answers, and and I think a lot of this is due to sort of tradition that's gone on forever, which is that we the way we define a selling process which does no favors to sellers at all. And so when you say, look, your selling process consists of these discrete stages, one of which is discovery. And then in this has become more of the case in sort of what quote, quote unquote modern sales is we have exit criteria for a discovery stage. And it's like, yeah, it's over. And it's like, it's never, it's never over. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you 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 do discovery up to the time they sign their name on the line, um, but this is not this is not sort of what's what's taught right and and the way sellers are socialized. It's like oh this is something we got to do and then we move on. Exactly. And go ahead, I just. Well, I think that that you've got two other forces that are keeping us from sort of being our best human sales and selves and doing great discovery, which is. We say the pressure of sales and the promise of pay. So you've got someone breathing down your neck saying, you you know, you said you'd get me 50K by the end of the week. Where is it? And you have the fact that you're paid well when you do close. So there's a lot of incentive to sort of move to the close and not stay longer in discovery. And, you know, I think we do get pushback saying, well, what do you mean? We want to just keep staying open and not close the deal. And no, we're not saying that. And and, uh, but we are saying like, don't narrow too soon. And discovery is always going on. It's not a stage, as you just said. So it doesn't mean you're not moving closer to a deal, but it doesn't mean you're not stopping learning either. Well, I think one of the, and I talk about this in my new book that's coming out, is is that one of the critical milestones that sellers need to think about, that's a huge competitive advantage, if they can be the first one to get to that milestone, is the first one to understanding Mm-hmm. Hmm. Say more about that. What do you mean by the first one? Well, is so. Yeah, customers don't move don't move through their process at the same pace with every vendor, right? They're on multiple paths, and as a seller, what I've 
found and as you know, a consultant and so on has found is that if I can be the first seller to get to the point where I understand what's the most important thing to the buyer in terms of their challenge they want to solve and the outcome they want to achieve, if I can be the first to understand that, then I can be the first to put together a, a vision of what success will like, like, look like and a plan to get it. And if I do that, I'm going to win. Yeah. That's interesting. Because, because buyers don't want to spend an unlimited amount of time making a decision. Mm-hmm. And so there's been you know, research done on this with uh, Herbert Simon, Nobel Prize winner, talking about maximizers and satisficers. Uh, meaning that satisficers are people that will <laughs> research until they find something that, that uh, satisfies the requirements and suffices to enable them to achieve their desired outcomes. And when they, when they find that, they make a decision. And that's, that's called the good enough decision. And this is what most, most people do. Yeah, that works for me. That's going to enable me to hit the goal that we want to hit. And they make the decision. They say, well, I had incremental, the, the marginal return I'll get on investing incremental time to look for further solutions just isn't worth it. It doesn't pay back. Hmm. So this idea is that through discovery, this is why I'm so passionate about discovery, because discovery is the key to getting to that point where you, you get to this point of understanding mm-hmm. what's the most important thing for the buyer and who it's most important to. And if you do that, the buyer's ready to move forward. Yeah, I, I agree. And I like what you said is like, you know, you're, the, the reason you do discovery is trying to figure out what is most important to your customer. What do they care about? What, what problems are they trying to solve holistically and also specifically sort of both big picture as well as mm-hmm. uh, sort of smaller uh, business outcomes that they're going for and then figuring out how you can support them. Well, and some of those smaller things can be the real deciders. What do you, oh, deciders, yes. Yeah. I mean, they, they can be the differentiation. It's, it's uh, yeah, I remember this article written, I don't know, 10 years or so ago in Harvard, Harvard Business Review by these uh, academics that have written about selling. They're talking about tie-breaking selling, right? When things are virtually the same or identical, you know, how, do you, how do you win? Well, it's these small things as you just talked about. The, these small insights you have. This, yeah, we can solve the big picture, but maybe who's solving the small one for us as well? Yeah, and that can make a huge difference. And if you don't do discovery appropriately, you'll never understand those. Yeah, one sort of I don't know if it's a trick, but one of the things that we bring from the world of design to sellers is this idea of macro and micro. So trying <clears throat> to understand macro, like what are the macro priorities of your customer? And mm-hmm. then when we say micro, we mean sort of the, who are the end customer sets of your customer who are engaged with you. So let's say your customer is, uh, we're doing this with a client tomorrow, Jackson Wines. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the end customer sets are all the different people or different customer sets that might buy that wine, including right. the restaurants, the venues, the uh, uh, just hitting 21-year-olds, the families, sure. et cetera. And then trying to connect, like, let's say Jackson Wine is going, one of their strategic priorities is going after uh, new drinkers, let's say, the Mm 21-year-old set, then do some discovery on that end user, the 21-year-olds that they care about, so that you can have something to say that's interesting and provocative and useful to your customer. And that 
is like tr- connecting the dots between macro and micro and puts you in a very unique differentiated position. Yeah, no, I, I like that. I mean, I think there was a certain emphasis on your book on sort of what I call the B two B to C customers that you're selling to, which is is great, right? Because it's not often talked enough about. And I think the approach you take about actually talking to the end users of your customers is fantastic. But in a B two B environment, you still have the same. I phrase it different in my book, but it's the same imperative as I call it going from big, big to small, which is you know you're you're doing your your discovery questions, I say, you have a, I like to use the term impact questions, is, you know, what's the impact of making the change on the organization? Next level down, what's the impact of making the change on your team? What's the impact of making the change on you? Right? And you always have to narrow it down to as finite a level as you can. Absolutely. Otherwise, you don't under, you really don't understand what's happening. Yeah, and the other thing we emphasize is this idea of getting user stories. So, in your example, mm-hmm. like what are the stories of the people at each level, and yep. how they engage, or you know, whatever you're selling, like what's what's going on in their lives, so that you can say, mm-hmm. "And I spoke to Andy, who's in San Diego, and here's what I learned," and make it come to right. life. It's much stickier. Yeah, yeah, I said same thing in a B two B world get to the end user and part of part of why I recommend people doing in this discovery mode, which is I have sort of two, two parts to it. one is, is, you know, you're asking the questions, but then you're also trying to make sure you really understand, but is to, is to make people, if you don't have access to the end users, which is possible in some cases is you have to make the people that are stakeholders, you have to make them, do a test drive of what it's going to be like to use the product or service in their day-to-day lives. They have to project that. If you don't have the end user, you can do this with an end user too. Well, you know, if you got to an end user of your software, let's say you were selling and say, you know, this is what we do. We do X, let's say, or we do X and Y. So tell me, what would the impact be on your daily routine? Walk me through it. Well, how would that change if you could do X and Y? Mm-hmm. Well, suddenly it starts becoming real to them, right? I call that a mental test drive. They take a mental test drive. We do that with every level. Take them through these mental test drives. Yeah. That's a that's a form of discovery because they're suddenly starting to think about, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Suddenly an insight pops up, right? Yeah. Maybe another opportunity for you to sell something or maybe it's something you co-create to your point. Well, if we could do that, let's think about that. Let's work that through. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's I'm glad you had that sort of emphasis in the book because yeah, people just get satisfied and get robotic and ask the same questions. And I think what many sellers don't understand or don't, they would understand if they put the thought into it, is that if you're perceived as robotically asking questions of your buyer, you're not the only seller they're talking to. Mm-hmm. They've been on the receiving end of this a lot. Your buyers, they give you robotic responses. Yeah, that's a great point. If you're a robot, they're a robot. Yeah. So you just get superficial. Ask a super fu- superficial question, excuse me. <laughs> you get a superficial answer. Well, I also think that there is um, something about there's role and compensation that also impacts behavior. I was just talking to an SDR and a, a CSM person. And mm-hmm. the SDR said, you know, I'm not really um, – incentivized to do that much discovery i'm incentivized of getting the meeting so i will shut the conversation down if you seem to be somewhat interested and i think i can get a meeting i'm just going to move you to that 
And the CS person said, um, you know, I am in the account and I do have a lot of opportunity to uncover a lot, um, but that's not what I'm compensated on. Um, so I'd rather not, you know, I'm, I've got the things that I am compensated on and then it's really up to the AE, um, which I do think in that situation, it's a disservice to the organization, how the comp oh, structure, sure. I mean, it's getting in the way of good discovery, which is getting in the way of, you know, expansion opportunities. Well, I think that, yeah, I think that, that one of the real opportunities that exist is to do better education slash training of success people, whether it's CSMs or account managers, because over a period of time, the vast majority of the company's revenue is coming from renewals and upsells. Absolutely. And that group is driving it. So they have to become as proficient, if not possibly even better than the AAEs at discovery. Yeah, but they have to be compensated for it. Otherwise, they're not even going to do it. Well, that's... That's a, that's like a different discussion about how do you set expectations for people, what their jobs are. Because for me, sure, it's one thing to make sure the customer is happy. Yeah. But that's just part of the picture, right? Part of making them happy is also being able to continue to fulfill the needs that come up that are new. Yeah. So you're only doing half the job if you think you know, your job is just to make sure that their implementation is going smoothly. Yeah. Yeah. And not, I mean, you would say... Probably, and not becoming sort of this quote unquote trusted advisor, the consultative right. relationship that says, like, look, we're in this together. Help me figure this out. Not just this problem, but these other problems that I've. Well, I'm here. I'm, I'm not here on site physically, but <laughs> virtually, I'm here all the time. Uh, it should be the expectation that's set for CSMs and AMs, depending on the company, individual companies, you know, lay out the responsibilities, delineate that. This is, this is, this is actually your primary job is you're our in you're our, our channel to understand what's happening at this customer. Yeah. And what are they most concerned about now? What are they most concerned about with regard to tomorrow? Um, and how are we in a position to help them? Yeah. And if that's information that's not being fed back, if that doesn't come from the relationships and the discovery they do with that, then yeah, you're flying blind and you will get high churn. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I keep thinking this idea of like context does matter, though. Like I can give you all the skills in the world to do great discovery and you might be really excited about this and do a great job. But if you're completely overwhelmed, like some CS organizations are so overwhelmed, you're like, I got to list this long for each customer. So I'm just like, I got to power through them. I can't or I'm not compensated. You know, and my and so it just doesn't make sense for me to do that or like whatever it might be. I, there's this marriage between these skills and mindsets, but also the context and sort of structure that goes around it in order to support new behaviors. Sure. Right. Well, I mean, and certainly this comes up as you, you read your book is that, you know, the sellers feel certain conflicting pressures. That's right. Based on the way sales is largely managed these days about how they allocate their time. But the fact is, and you start referencing a couple of the examples you give in your book is the fact is, I believe that by and large sellers are underperforming. Mm. Yeah. They could be doing so much more. Yeah. In part because decisions that they feel the managers want them to make or the managers are making for them about how they allocate their time. So this is one of the themes in my new book is, is 
you can say I'm not compensated for something. You could say, you know, I feel a lot of pressure from my boss to, you know, he wants me to get more pipeline rather than focus deep dive discovery on this particular, this particular prospect. You have to decide as an individual what's you want to achieve and what's important to you. And it may say, well, it may lead to some, you know, tough conversations with bosses, but the fact is as a seller, no one cares about you and your success as much as you do. So yeah, if you read read your your book, Naked Sales, read my book, and you say, gosh, I really want to change how I'm doing this. And but it's, if I want to do this right the way they lay out, it's it's sort of at odds with sort of the culture and the the way it's being prescribed for us. My advice is do what you need to do. Right? Because no one no one cares. Yeah. You could you could be directed by a boss to say, Yeah, this is how you want to do it, X A B C. Do it this way. Mm-hmm. And your gut's telling you, oh no, I I yeah, my experience when that's just not gonna work. That's not if it doesn't work and your job's on the line, who gets fired? You are the boss. That's right. So you have to seize you have to take control. You have to and and as managers, you have to learn how to give people more autonomy and Again, this sort of came out in some of the examples you give in your book. More autonomy, more agency over the choices they make about the things they do to succeed. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. I mean, well, I, I'm conscious of like saying all this and yet I'm like, I'm so, I have so much respect for particularly tech sales, which just feels like such a pressure cooker. It's complex. It's hard. You're always got to be on your game. Um, and there are a lot of competing forces, um, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I'm, you know, so many sellers are just incredible innovators, right? And I just was talking to a seller yesterday who was uh, saying she created this maturity assessment. I was asking her about discovery, actually, and right. asking, like, you know, so tell me what you do. And she said, I created this maturity assessment, which is 40 questions. I got it vetted by a Forrester analyst, and she works for a tech firm, and, uh, and right. then other people within my organization so that I now have this robust assessment that I can sit down with a customer and really ask them really good questions. And what it does is if they say they agree to uh, complete the assessment with me, one, I know they're in the game with me. Yep. Yep. But two, yep. um, I get great information and just the conversation that happens as we go through it. And three, my words now, is it is a co-creative motion. It almost doesn't matter or, or the secondary benefit is it just feels good to be in this conversation together. So I feel like you're invested in me and you're a partner with me. Um, and anyway, so my point was she created this thing on her own, is using it. I love it. Right? She didn't it. come from anyone else besides her. And I said, well, is the organization watching you? And like, don't other people want to use it? She said, yeah, well, I've told people about it, but they're not that interested. <laughs> I'm like, my God, like it, it's so they're brilliant. And it's doing exactly what you're saying too, which is like, do what you know is right for you and your customer. Well, and it differentiates her yeah. in the eyes of, of her buyer. Absolutely. Because none of her competitors are coming in and doing this. Yes. <laughs> and it's like, wow, this person gets it, right? This person gets it in a way that competitors don't, I know I'm going to assume based on reading your book that you believe this as well as I do is that at the end of the day, the day, the decision comes down to a buyer making a decision about a seller. Yes, I totally agree with you. And the experience they had with that seller. And in this case, this woman you're talking about is just 
<laughs> doing a fantastic job creating a differentiated experience. And so the first impression she creates is so strong. She's, she's already in the lead at that point. Yeah. And this is, and so the point I was sort of making before is that your managers, and I think you use this term in your book, I was reading a couple of things recently, but about, you know, scarcity mindset is, you know, managers, I think too often these days approach selling for a basis of fear, right? I, I, people have to serve. If they don't conform to our process. They don't conform to this. Then I get nervous because then I can't make sense of the metrics that I'm looking at and the activity that I see. Mm-hmm. And my approach is always, well, that's your problem. Right. What your job really is, is to empower your people to go out and try stuff, mm-hmm. experiment like this woman did and be creative and be innovative. And along the lines of your design thinking is do it in a way that enables you to become the best version of yourself. The thing that's consistent with your your character, your values, your experience, uh, what you've learned from other managers, what you've learned from your customers that's what we want to enable people to do. And this idea of a more individualized approach is frightening to many managers. Yes. Yeah. If I, I, I want to manage one process, I don't want to manage 10 processes. But the problem is the 10 processes exist anyway. Yeah, right. They're going to happen whether you want them or not. I mean, of course, it's all about a balance. You need to create consistency and efficiency, but you also want people to have autonomy and creativity. So... I don't envy the job, but um, you're right. If you don't give people the autonomy, I mean, it's basically one of the basic needs, right, is to have some autonomy. Um, you're at sure. risk of losing people. Well, and you describe a process that's very you know, creative and innovation-based, and you give it examples, right, that people just, you know, like the first story in the book about guy riding the Greyhound bus. And, yep. Right, is that that was – that was creative. Yeah. Now, if you've been told, look, no, 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 <laughs> you can't do that. You can't take the time to go do that. Then it's sort of, yeah, this large deal would never have happened. Yeah. So we need to encourage people to, and give them agency over the choices they make about how they sell. And I think this is just one of the biggest pieces missing in the puzzle for so many managers is to, to understand that if I give people more choice over how they do this job, I am going to get the innovation. I am going to get the creativity. And most importantly, I'm going to get the productivity I need. Absolutely. So how did you come to these philosophies? By being really uncomfortable from the get-go in my sales career with the way it was being taught <laughs> and, and saying basically from almost day one, and I, and I write about this in the book as one of the opening stories in the book at first training class, working with this big company, uh, first job in my career, big tech company, going through sales training and just looking at the training videos and the exercises we did and thinking to myself, what human being acts this way? Uh-huh. <laughs> and the answer is a none and B not me. And so I was determined that, unless I want to have a really short career in sales is I had to find a way to make sales work for me as opposed to the other way around. And yeah, so I was, I was always, and certainly had the, was given the leeway by managers Uh 
to experiment. Of course, I had to be accountable for results, but I was yeah, president's club and so on. So I, I was delivering. Yeah. But I was constantly experimenting and saying what worked best for me. And which, you know, which areas do I had to learn and push myself into out of my comfort zone, but that also just seemed to be more aligned with my abilities and what I was you know, able to do. Mm-hmm. And I was not salesy. I was, I was uh, the opposite of that. You know, more introverted. Uh, but, you know, this first training class I went to, everybody in the class was like they put on this act. They were, you know, super salesy people. And I sort of recoiled from that. It's like, yeah, if I have to be that, this is, this is not going to happen. Yeah. But I didn't have to be. And so throughout my career, I've always taken the approaches. I'm going to experiment. I'm going to try a lot of things. I'll listen to advice. But at the end of the day, I'll make the decision about what I think is going to work best. And I'll, you know, based on the evidence and my own success and so on. And yeah, I'll push back if I have to, if, if, if I thought that what was being asked of me was inappropriate or just going to be wrongheaded. And so, yeah, it's probably kind of a pain in the ass some places with some bosses because I wasn't hugely compliant, <laughs> but Are I the numbers spoke themselves. Right. Yeah. So this is an attitude I think sellers have to take is again, it's, I came up an era in sales where sometime within the first, whether during the interview process or the first week on the job, you know, a manager would say to you, here's your patch, here's your territory, whether it's a you know, geographic territory or a list of accounts or whatever. In my case, it was a vertical market um, that I was servicing. And he said, you're the CEO of this business. How are you, you going to grow it? Right? So we had this, we're imbued from the beginning, and I don't see this hardly at all in sales anymore, where managers tell people, you are the CEO of this patch. You own this. How are you going to get this business done? Mm-hmm. And let me and know what you need. Back. Right. Step back and tell me what you need. Yeah. Instead of being the equivalent of what happens now is, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, it's, it's probably because it was role modeled by their, their parents, but managers are helicopter managers. Yeah. And, yeah, sometimes you got to let people flounder a little bit. You got to let people navigate and, you know, try things. And, yeah, if it doesn't work, try something else. Give them this, this, this freedom, this flexibility. And I think this is, to me, is one of the huge issues in terms of productivity and B2B selling these days is just, you know, we're trying to create flocks of sheep rather than individual thinkers. I do think of sellers, uh, myself included, is inclined to be individual thinkers and very entrepreneurial and not those the type who likes to be you know, told what to do, put into a process, et cetera. So it is trying to like force something that's not naturally there for many people. And you're saying anyway that the end, they're not getting the results by doing that force fit. Yeah. Well, I mean, just look at, yeah, lots of industries where collectively the win rates are so low that it's mind boggling. Yeah. And yet some companies are still scaling, even with those win rates, but it's, they're playing a game, right? Cause they're able to fill the top of the funnel and they know they'll get certain results if they just put enough crap into the top of the funnel. So they'll accept these low win rates. But if you're a seller, this point I keep coming back to is if you are a seller, you could be hitting your number for the year, 
But if your win rate, let's say, was 25%, you know, you're winning a quarter of your qualified opportunities, I think you're still failing. Yeah. I don't care where they hit your number. You're you're under you're you're underperforming because three quarters of your customers are voting and not voting for you. Yeah. They're making a decision. Yeah, you didn't do a very good job on this. Yeah. And how can you how can you accept that? <laughs> right? How can you accept that? You're in a competitive business and you'll just accept that you're gonna lose three quarters of your opportunities. I couldn't. Yeah, I, in my, I'm, yeah, I firmly believe that if you're not winning at least a majority of, of your most qualified opportunities, then you're not being well served by your managers because they should be working with you to tell you, look, we've got to get better. Yeah. But I, yeah, this is, this is not unusual these days. Yeah. Trying to think of like, well, I don't know. I don't have anything to say really about the win rate because I don't have stats, my own stats about what that looks like. No, I think everybody should know that. I mean, to me, this is not to point the finger at you, but I, I think in general, sellers, you need to know your numbers. Pay attention to that. I agree. Yeah. I mean, you should know. You're, you should know your, your conversion rates through your stages. You should know, should know your win rates and not be waiting for somebody to tell you, but you should know. They should, to the same degree that you know what you need to do to earn something on your commission plan. So I just think it's, yeah. I mean, I what I like about one of the things I like about your book is, it, you know, there's a a call for change in a in a very real sense. Yes, yeah, you're right. It's a mindset shift, and but the shift and really has to start at the top. Yeah. I mean, it, we want to start from the ground up as well. That's great, but it has ultimately has to be endorsed at the top. Yeah. So what do you see in terms of how you how do you affect this type of change? Because it's really it's it has it's a mindset shift as much for leadership as it is for the individual contributors. I agree. Uh, well, when we work with teams, we you know either we're working with groups of let's say AEs or we're working with account teams. Um, we always create a track where we're also working with the leaders and managers, so that we're educating them along the way so that they can be good coaches to these behaviors. Um, and we're, you know, educating them on what does customer centricity really look like in terms of behaviors and presumably mm-hmm. causing them to ask some questions around how right. they're coaching, um, what they're coaching to, even what the systems are in place mm-hmm. that are either, you know, supporting this new behavior set or not. Um, so it, it, it almost doesn't work, like you're saying, if you're just working with a group of AEs, let's say, but you're not working with the leadership. The only way it, oh, yeah. it's, it works to some degree if people are getting great results and they have the autonomy to do things, then people tend to get left alone in sales. Um, but it, if you're really trying to shift how you go to market and differentiate yourself, you absolutely need to be aligned with the top. Yeah, I think this, then this is the challenge. And yeah, I've, through the course of of doing this podcast and talking with hundreds and hundreds of sales leaders, they're a very conservative group. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I was going to ask you what you noticed about them. A very conservative group. Very change resistant. Mm-hmm. Very very fear based by and large. Fear based as much as as their sellers are, because yeah. 
Well, because I think that that it, it starts, you know, <laughs> it starts way at the top, but it's, we know that average tenure for certainly within the tech industry in the Valley, like average tenure for a head of sales, whatever title you give them 18 months, something like that. Right. Two years. Yeah. So how can you, when you bring someone to that position, how, what motivation do they have to try to innovate and change things? If doing so risks perhaps disrupting results for a month or two, which cascades into or a longer. Quarter, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and cascades into a missed year. Yeah. Instead of just sort of trying to, you know, tape things together and make sure it doesn't fall apart. Yeah. And we can just move forward. And so I think there's this sort of built in barrier to change that's caused by these short tenures and that no one's willing to take a risk to do the right thing. Huh. I, I guess, yes, because you don't want it on your record that, you know, you left after 18 months and everything went downhill. And at the same time, if I'm leaving in eight months, I don't know, it feels like a little easier to be like, I might as well switch it up and try something. Well, that's that. I think that's, I agree hundred percent. I think that more people have to be put into those roles that are going to come in as part of the interview process and say, look, I'm going to shake this shit up and I'm telling you right now, it's going to suck for six months. Exactly. But at the end of six months, it's going to look so good. Exactly. And if you don't buy into that, then, Hey, I'm not a fit for this, but I don't see enough of that taking place. And I think that's what contributes to the churn is, is people get into situations that cry out for change, but they're afraid to make the change. And so they just try to, I said, keep it together going forward. And it, part of the reason they came in is it wasn't doing well. <laughs> it's like they didn't make it better. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a conundrum. It's tough. And I think this is true up and down the ladder in sales is that at every role, people think it's akin to trying to fix an airplane while it's in flight. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. And I do think, uh, I, I always think of sales sort of as a function it was an entity, it has ADD, like constantly switching, moving, switching people, mm-hmm. switching mm-hmm. like what you're interested, what's going right. to save the day. And that it's really without focus and a sustained focus on something. It is very hard to make change stick. Yeah. So I think that in those organizations that are more successful are those where it's funny. You, you, a lot of times people talk about, yeah. Trigger events, right? Uh, we're going to go sell to this organization because they've got a new VP of sales or a new CRO. And this is a trigger event that's going to lead them to invest. And it's like, mm, yeah, I suspect that's really not the case as much as you think. I hope. Because they want to make, they don't put their stamp on it to some degree, but radical change is dangerous in their minds. Well, and we're human beings. We don't like to change, right? We like status quo. Or wired for it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's so, yeah. Change change is difficult. And I feel like we're, in general, in sales, we're sort of reaching a point, an inflection point, where it's really going to need to change. Because my belief is, based on, and there's not a lot of great data about this, but based on my gut feel, based on the length of time I've been in this and the experience and exposure to so many different companies is that sort of the basic rate of productivity, mm. the way I 
define it as, as revenue generated per hour of selling time as a basic measure. And I've had some couple conversations with a couple of academics about this, but again, not, <laughs> not, uh, you know, definitive, but generally everybody's feel is that productivity hasn't mm. gotten better in the last 20, 30 years. If anything, it may have declined. Yeah, one academic I talked to about this that said that actually perhaps it's declined. So, and what's the inflection point you're seeing? What's the transition to? Yeah, I, I don't think we have all the answers to that yet. I mean, I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily more automation, though. There's certain aspects of selling that continue to be automated that you know people don't necessarily need to be involved with. But, um, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Not sure. I mean, we see these studies people talk about as, you know, seller and buyers no longer want to talk to sellers. I don't think that's really true. Yeah. Buyers don't want to talk to sellers that can't help them. Yeah. Or, did you know, if, I might do enough research. I don't need to talk to you right now, but at some point I'm going to need to talk to you. Sure. Possibly. But I mean, I think, I think this, this notion is that, you know, buyers want to do more and more on their own is true to the extent that they feel that they can't receive any value from the sellers. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, this, I think this is probably the inflection point where (laughs) rubber meets the road is like, yeah, if you can't change, then perhaps you get taken out of the equation. Yeah. And, and that's not going to improve productivity either. It's just gonna be cheaper for companies to do. So yeah, it's a good question. You have to come back. We'll talk about it. (laughs) Give you a year (laughs) to figure this out. Yeah. Right. Well, well, okay. We'll schedule that for a year. So, well, unfortunately, we've run out of time today, but thank you for joining me. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. If people want to learn more about what you're doing and connect with you and your book, how can they do that? Yeah, they can find me on LinkedIn. So, it's Ashley Welch, Somersault Innovation. Um, and my email is on the website, uh, somersaultinnovation.com. Somersault is with one mm-hmm. M. And you can look for us to be coming out uh, later this year with a discovery program, a new online discovery program. So we're excited oh, cool. to build that. Very cool. Well, I look forward to hearing about that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Andy. Ashley. Yeah. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I am so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Ashley Welch, for sharing her insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can do that all on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help with that. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.